the game is afoot, all our buddies. Welcome back to the final Podblum, the only Sherlock Holmes read-through show brought to you by two actual escapees from a deranged cult in the heart of the desert. That is a joke, but not for the reasons you'd think. I'm one of your <laughs> hosts, Casey, son of Moch, and joining me is what they got when they put two Dr. Bashirs and a Data into a Vitamix and hit Frappe. Who do I have here? <laughs> That is the best description of me anyone has ever given. This is uh, this is Nicholas Cohen. I am here, and I've read the book this time. <laughs> the whole thing. There you go. <laughs> the whole thing, guys. He's bringing like, the big guns today. To I don't end. think we're ready for this. And it was great because apparently having read this book uh, years ago, I assume I read it because I remember the first half. I remembered, like, nothing about the mystery whatsoever. <laughs> like, this was, it was like reading yep. it for the first time. It was pretty great. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember. And the second half of the book, there, it's two different books. And that's, that's something it really we'll, is. we'll get into a little bit. Um, before we begin yeah. properly, I do want to make a note that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, was as we discussed previously uh w slash r slash t his racism uh he was very much mm -hmm. a product of his time and as a result has some less than kind things to say about the good folks who prefer these days to be known as the church of latter-day saints he sure did this story um like i mean no not spoilers really but they do kind of be end up being framed in a less than positive light and uh, mm -hmm. if we have any listeners who are LDS or friends of the LDS or just don't prefer that sort of thing, consider this your warning. You're free to listen or not listen. We will take absolutely no offense, we promise. That said, mm -hmm. um, I, I think we can agree that while, you know, you can look at any religious institution, be it the LDS or mainstream Christianity or Scientology or whatever, and you can, you can point to the things that the group itself does, but almost every individual religious person is just trying to find a way to get through the day and be a better version of themselves. So mm -hmm. you can, you know, we, we can say a lot about the, it's, it's like, it's the thing I always say about the musical, the book of Mormon, which is that it makes hard fun of Mormonism, but not of Mormons. And that's an important mm -hmm. distinction. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a heads up. Uh, this is going to be a little rough. If like me, you live in a Mormon town, but they're lovely people <laughs> in my experience. And uh, I didn't want anybody to feel bad. So I thought I'd just toss that up ahead of time. That's I, that's really nice. I didn't even think of that, but I'm glad you went ahead and did that because I was just going through this thing like coming from a, you know, a strict Christian. But I, I obviously I, I don't make fun of any I, I don't particularly consider myself very religious, but mm -hmm. I also don't go out of my way to make fun of religious people. I consider right. that uh, what was known in Victorian times as a dick move uh, so I try <laughs> to avoid that as much as possible. Um, I believe yeah, in the, the Queen's law. That was officially. Yes, <laughs> they definitely dig really hard into uh, Mormonism as a uh, as a cult. Uh, so, yeah, good, uh, good on you bringing that up. Not to, definitely not to justify religious prejudice, uh, but like at the time, the religion mm -hmm. was maybe 50 years old and it was doing some stuff that was pretty shocking and a little worried. You know, it was very separatist. Um, yeah. It was, it you know, not to get into the polygamy thing, but they did that for a while. They, they yeah. <laughs> and, you know, say this for the LDS church. Uh, they know which way the wind is blowing. That stopped being a part of their practice, I believe, like three or four years after this story was published. If I oh, remember wow, from really? my reading correctly. The, the polygamy thing? Exactly. And it's not, you know, it's not like this one British author is calling us out, man. We got to cut, you know, like it's, it's <laughs> clear that those wheels were in motion even then. 
Mm-hmm. So this was written by a guy who clearly did not have a lot of firsthand contact with uh, Mormon folk and who was using them as a device because it was a strange exotic religion that he could make seem sinister. Right, yeah. That said, so last time there were a couple of murders. Um, we should probably say the name of the thing. This is A Study in Scarlet Part 2, The Country yes. of the Saints, which is mm-hmm. the best name for anything I've ever heard in my life. Last mm-hmm. time there was a couple of murders and then Holmes uh, slapped a couple of lawman bracelets on a dude and it cuts immediately to uh, an intense, thorough description of the setting of an American tale, Fievel Goes West. <laughs> I thought of it more as... Uh... I, I felt like I was going right back to Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, sure. <laughs> Red Dead Revenge. Um, but yeah, so we got... Uh, let me give like my off-the-cuff description of the events happening in the story, which I experienced apparently for the first time, since I don't remember <laughs> any of it. Um, <laughs> Study in Scarlet Part 2. We have a Mormon mafia? Three question yep. marks? Uh, More mafia. And then I totally 100% forgot this whole mystery. Holy shit. Just like Red Dead 2, Red Dead <laughs> Okay. How much... Oh, I was going to ask you uh, if you knew anything about this. How much of this uh, Salt Lake City history is actually true? Because I'm willing to bet all of it, including the murdery parts. Hmm, never mind. Maybe not the murdery parts. But do you know much else about um, being, a, being a studier of... of many different kinds of religion i i know i'm gonna disclaimer right now i know absolutely nothing about mormonism at all like i know christianity and i know judaism and that's about it right well okay so uh first of all and this is not on you not being in the circle you'd have no way of knowing this the preferred nomenclature is now lds or latter-day saints they're trying to move away from mormonism just because it has negative connotations in some of their minds um, okay. So the history of that, yeah, I'm I'm a little thin on it. Uh, I do know that Joseph Smith claimed to have himself some revelations, claimed to find himself mm-hmm. some golden plates buried in a hill, uh, which had uh, reformed Egyptian writing on them. Claimed to translate these and came up with what he alleged to be. And I want to be very clear to any you know listeners who may be of that faith. When I say alleged, I, I mean that with the same way I'd speak about any religion. I'm not throwing shade here. I'm just saying you know this is the story as it was mm-hmm. presented. He translated mm-hmm. a a lost original uh, additional book of Jesus who was called the Christ, um, which had these. Because what's interesting is in the standard Christian Bible. By which I mean the Protestant mm-hmm. one, I guess, not including the Apocrypha from the Catholicism. Um, it even <laughs> says after the resurrection that Jesus stayed around for a good long time and did more things than could be fit in all the books in all the world. So you could easily see that as a sequel hook, and you know yeah. this book, of, this book of Mormon, could easily be considered that sequel. I do know that uh, the LDS Church. They do consider themselves to be Christians. Most branches of Christianity do not agree with that, but Mm. that's really more for doctrinal reasons than it is for behavioral ones. Um, I'm I'm by no means an expert and uh, do not claim to represent anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also not here to tell anyone that they are or no, are not anything they say they are. That's that's not for anyone to say, obviously. Oh yeah, no, um, absolutely. That said. They okay, so there's there's a pattern, <clears throat> and this is this is something I've thought about a great deal. Um, the precursor of my religion, actually, the Baha'i faith, actually does show up in a later Sherlock Holmes story when they meet some uh, some people of the Babi faith, but that's a different story. So there's which one? 
I'm honestly not sure. I want to say it had something red in the title, the Crimson something. And you know what? That might not even be in the canon. That might be like a further adventures sort of thing. I'm not sure. Okay, we'll, anyway. we'll see. We'll yeah, so there's, there's, sure. there's, there's, a thing, there's a thing in religion, and it's actually a thing in civics and social stuff too, uh, where you have a religion that comes to power and it becomes very powerful. And when you have power, you tend to have corruption. And then, usually from the bottom ranks of that, you have a young charismast who claims to have a return to the original principles of the religion to cut through all the dogma and all the bullshit and a return to original principles. And that usually splinters off into a daughter religion. That's what Jesus did with Judaism, which had become very legalistic and top-heavy. And then uh, that's what... The Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, did with Hinduism and uh, what the prophet of my own religion, Baha'u'llah, um, did with Islam in the uh, 1840s, which was interestingly around the same time that all of the Joseph Smith Mormonism stuff was happening just on the other side of the world. This no. is not the religion podcast. The point is <laughs> when, these new, when these new splinter or daughter religions split off, they have sort of a very fervent, very insular thing about them, and they tend to be viewed as kind of cultish because they tend to center around a charismatic figure, and they can kind of be sort of secretive and, well, we've got the real truth, so we mm -hmm. know what's going on. Um, Dylan, cut all of this, or don't. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So don't, we, this is fascinating. <laughs> it's, I, this, this, it's a different show. I could go on about it forever. Oh, yeah, no, um, absolutely. So the, the Mormon faith, the LDS faith, claimed again to do that same thing, that it was a return to the original founding principles of what it understood to be Christianity and the message of Jesus, who was called the Christ, um, that it cut through all of the dogma and uh, corruption that had built up over the last 2,000 years. So it was, uh, we're starting over, we're starting clean. This is Christianity 2.0, despite the fact that Protestantism was arguably already Christianity 2.0 to Catholicism's Christianity 1.0, but that's a different <laughs> conversation. Mm -hmm. So is that where the point where we're starting at in, uh, in yes. history with this story? Yes. Thank you for getting there. me back on track. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, well, frequently, along with these splinter religions, you get persecution from the ruling power. You know, Muhammad right. and his, uh, peace be upon him, and his followers were kicked out of Mecca and went to Medina, or were kicked out of Medina and went to Mecca. I can never keep those straight. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Moses and his folks were kicked out of and or liberated from Egypt. That's a different conversation. You know, Jesus, of course, faced great persecution and all of this. It's just a new thing when you speak truth or perceived truth to power. Power tends not to react too charitably and tells you to get the hell out while the getting is good. So with that in mind, um, Joseph Smith and following his death, his followers, including uh, the prophet Brigham Young, who becomes a uh, not too well portrayed character in this book, actually, um, which is which is actually kind of a huge dick move. Don't don't villainize anyone's <laughs> prophets, dude. Uh, they set out to the unsettled West uh, in search of their own promised land where they could set up a utopian, explicitly religious society called Deseret, which uh, means honeybee. So hmm. they were going to have a whole, and that's why you'll you'll typically see a lot of like bees and honeycomb and stuff like that associated with uh, LDS shops and community stuff because it's supposed to imply industriousness and harmony and unity. So yes, it is the desert. 
And what's what's fun is, you know, we're Americans. We've always been Americans. Right. And for basically the duration of accurately recorded history, as far as we're concerned, you know, the past 100 and 150 years, America has been arguably one of the, what, three major world players? Sure, yeah. Yeah, three or four. Yeah, yeah. three or four. So the idea that it is not a world economic or cultural leader or that people might not be familiar with America is, I feel, it, it was deeply alien to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's just an odd thing to come across because Arthur Conan Doyle, he opens this thing and he's like, hey, y'all ever heard of this place called America? Their shit is bonkers, mm-hmm. let me tell you. <laughs> like, there's like nothing there. It's just, there's, there's nothing nobody. There. It's exactly. emptiness. And I was just like, whoa. Because yeah, no, definitely America is um the, like the king of we're the best country ever and you know we rule and everyone wants to come to america it's so funny just like going back just a few just a couple hundred years just a couple hundred years and it's it's a wasteland basically it's just the wild well okay and that's extremely revisionist history of course that's (laughs) that's what we've been taught like before before you know the the white man settled here permanently oh yeah no absolutely yeah like there was there was a native population that rivaled i believe they had a metropolis that was the size of london at that time and there was actually a plague shortly before white folk got here that killed like i think it was 80 percent of the native population and we still don't know what it was because there was no unified unified written record, so we don't know. Uh, oh, anyway, damn. the point is at at that point, yeah, it was just this this endless. You could just keep going west forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arthur Conan Doyle feels the need to explain what a desert is to his readers, <laughs> <laughs> right. because you might never because you've never seen one before. So let me tell. Yeah, no, exactly. That's how I felt as a kid reading stories about like jungles and stuff because <laughs> i've only ever seen the desert and so i'm like what are all these plants i gotta google mm-hmm. all right so there is a couple of people um an old man and a young lady is it just the two of them or is it wasn't there a third guy who was in the process of dying horribly i think when the story opens it's just those just the two, two. yeah and then yeah. a reference to like a group of other people that right. they were traveling with but who have since all died Yes, so it's yes. just the two of them. They are clearly uh, on death's door. They're out lost in the middle of the desert uh, when who should happen upon them but a clanch of Mormons headed mm-hmm. out to to stake their own claim. And mm-hmm. the Mormons, they say, I mean, the LDS folks, forgive me, um, mm-hmm. long, year, long years of linguistic habit. The LDS mm-hmm. folks say, yeah, bro, uh, we're not just going to leave you out here in the desert. That's not mm-hmm. what our God would have us do. So y'all can come with us, but y'all got to take our faith. That cool. And like, <laughs> what are you going to say? No, <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I, I get the idea that if you're going specifically to found your own place where your people can live and practice your ways, I, I kind of get the idea that you just want your people there. Right. You can't just have one guy who's not on board exactly. with you all. You'd like just doing his own thing. He won't. Like at some point it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem, but also you can't just say to these people, "Well, you can either convert or we will leave you out here to die in the sun." So <laughs> I don't know, but right. uh, yes. They agree and they get taken there. What happens next, Nick? So uh so yeah, they they start founding this um this city, they're, you know, they're building houses. This guy ends up uh being pretty wealthy in uh yeah. in 
his in comparison with his society uh he raises this little girl as his daughter um and they are very happy together but um eventually as time goes on she grows i think she's like mm, like nine or something when or 12 when they start out and then she becomes a woman and Mm -hmm. they're like first of all to the um to the older guy oh my what's his name uh john farrier i think uh he he never gets married he he's like surfacely on board with Mormonism so that he can live there obviously and he's doing well right but in internally he's just kind of like you know what I don't know about this I don't really like not really you know right. I really just want to be able to raise my daughter um so he goes along um oh and it it may be important to note she is not like actually biologically his daughter but he has adopted no, yeah. her and they yeah they act as father and daughter yeah he she's basically his daughter yeah yeah and um but he never gets married because he doesn't is not on board with it. And so eventually they, you know, his daughter grows up and they come around and are asking him, like, so when are you going to get some wives? Like, you know, it's been a while, you know, you're, you should probably, you know, get a couple of those. And he's like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't feel like it. And then they're like, oh, okay. Well, also your daughter is totally old enough to get married now. So you should definitely see about her. Like, here's a couple of people who already like want her to be their wife or one of their wives and he's like oh shoot and then in the meantime to make it even better uh she falls in love with some random dude uh who's not a mormon who's like coming through town i don't know do, do you remember what he is he's like a is, he, is he i think he was cowboy? he was raised by the natives i believe <laughs> okay vague yeah, yeah that, no, that was he, my understanding i, re- I remember yeah. some vague racism about how he had earned he had learned like some stealth from the from the red men with whom he lived. yeah hunting skills yeah <laughs> and that's okay well that was another thing that like because because it is time for this uh young woman what was her name i want to say lucy lucy off the top of my head was it lucy, lucy. Uh, because they they want her to enter into the i guess reproductive economy you should call it <laughs> um like they make a note, uh, Coyle, Doyle makes a note that like he, everybody was into her. That like all the mm-hmm. young Mormon men, yeah. all of the all of the local, and he says that like even the local red men thought that she was pretty. And like that was the extent of her character <laughs> development. Like she is, yep, she it's is like a prize oh, to be fought over. She's really pretty. Everyone likes her, and she knows how to ride a horse. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's all you needed, and that's all you needed to be as a woman in that time. Apparently, honestly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, I'm just going to throw this out real quick. While Doyle is not the best at writing women characters, there do show up later in the canon a couple of honestly quite good female characters uh, for for the Victorian time. Like for right. for the time, they're they're pretty good. Uh, Irene Adler uh, as Holmes's you know opponent. Uh, I don't want to say enemy, but like opponent um, is actually a yeah. pretty good female character. Uh, for for the time and so is uh uh, mary morston who shows up in the sign of four she's not awesome she's still a little stereotypical but she's she has a lot of like grit and character beyond what would be like the typical but but lucy varier not so much yeah no she she is very much a bargaining chip uh Mm -hmm. in this economy and it's Okay, it's it's important to note because it does come up at some point uh, that mention is made 
the, the use the, the terms marriage and sealing are used almost interchangeably and for anyone not familiar with LDS theology um, there is marriage just as it is practiced out there you know the the standard civil ceremony two people bind themselves together and there is a concept called sealing whereby you are not only married in this life but you are bound eternally forever Whoa. in in all of the following you know what whatever whatever may come next it is it's very intense <laughs> and so there's this thing where like Ferrer, Ferrier, he he's a Christian and he believes that this young man with whom Lucy has fallen in love is a Christian and he does not count the people with whom he lives among the body Christian. He mm-hmm. he finds he thinks there and and again not to not to approve of any religious discrimination, but this is a relatively new religion that has come up and said no, all of you are wrong about the things you think you believe. We're going to do it this way, and so these men are saying. You know, not only do we want your daughter to be part of our stable of wives, but we want her literal soul. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that element to it as well, where he's just like, "Mm, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just it's not just like religious racism. It's just it's not just like these guys have weird ideas and I don't like them. Like he's Mm -hmm. there's there's some danger, like like genuine theological terror in this argument. And that's another thing. Like. The first half of this book was a detective story. It was solid. It had all the beats. And, like, this second half turns into a frontier horror story in Right, and then all order. of a sudden, it literally is just, like, it feels, it really feels like two different novels. Like, Doyle had yeah. two ideas. <laughs> he was like, I'm going to write these detective stories, but also I want to write this weird, like, American Western, like, suspense know, novel. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's just it, they're so it's such a like it gives you whiplash almost, but it's great. I mean, it when it all lines up at the end, I think it is just it's really fun to see it all just like kind of like the London st- the side of the pieces. story and then the yeah. American side of the story just weave itself together at the end. Certainly. I think he does a pretty good job of that. So Ferrier gets threatened by Brigham Young, who was kind of the. Um... I suppose you could say, like, the St. Peter to Joseph Smith, who was the main prophet of the Mormons. He was the one who was sort of given charge of the church after the death of Joseph Smith. So he's the big boss. Uh, Yeah, he's the extant big boss. Um, uh, BYU, of course, Brigham Young Mm -hmm. University, it still exists in Mm -hmm. his name. And it's not, don't use other people's prophets for your own purposes, especially. And so it's it's made very clear that there is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a Mormon mafia that... This town is controlled by, I believe they're called the Holy Four or, or mm-hmm. something like that, that there are, there are four big ones who are in charge of everything and they can just, they can just unperson you. Like if they don't yeah. like, if they don't, if they don't think you're, you're fervent enough, if they don't find your belief to be honest enough, you can just, you will just disappear. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 genuinely terrifying. Um, And so they come to Farrier and they say, yo, you got 30 days to get your daughter married to one of these two dudes. They're like, we're being nice about it. We're at least giving you an option, which one. You don't have a choice as to whether you're going to marry her or not, but at least you get to pick which dude she gets, you know, <laughs> married yeah. off to. And uh, he made a really interesting point, actually, because when they questioned him about why he didn't have any wives of his own, he made the really interesting point of like, a uh, dude, from what women? They are all married to dudes, <laughs> like <laughs> because, and that, that's an interesting point that I had never considered about polygamy was that, like, yeah, if every person can be married to like three or four women, that's going to eat up the available prospects. Right? Yeah, the dating pool will be very small. 
Um, so yeah, I, I'm getting I'm getting that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle not a fan of the Mormons. Um, so mm-hmm. without without saying that the LDS folks and the Mormons are creepy, nobody's saying that. Mm-hmm. It is safe to say that this setup is creepy. That there's yes. an isolated community out in out in the middle of nowhere, a point that you literally could not get to without almost dying and being mm-hmm. saved by them. They have mm-hmm. a fervent, strange new religion, and they are ruled over by a powerful few who can just disappear you if they feel like it. Mm-hmm. It's like if this were in like a fantasy setting or anything else, and he didn't base it off of real-ass actual existing religion and people it would be great like you know like it's 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 awesome like narrative technique i i'm trying to just think of it as like for the purpose of the narrative not like whenever i say mormons i don't mean like actual real mormons who exist like in real life but like in the context of the story right creepy (laughs) which and that was clearly a narrative choice because people had heard of this new religion they didn't know anything about it probably Mm. in england it wasn't a big thing because it is explicitly an american religion it has to do with when jesus came to america after the resurrection and met with the natives and a lost 13th tribe of hebrews which is pretty good and so that sort of exoticism sprinkled in there uh, coupled with the fact that it was probably relatively mysterious to most of his readers, uh, oh, yeah. would have made it much more interesting and mm, made it easier yeah. to be much more sinister. So these two young dudes, who mm-hmm. we are told are the two dudes who end up murdered in the first half of the novel, right? Yes, there they are. Uh, so we, yeah, so we get he gets a warning from the people in charge that okay, so if you don't marry our daughter off to one of these two guys, you will very vague threat not it not really exist anymore it'll just kind of it's not we're gonna kill you it's just you just better do this just just do it and uh and so he's like shit so they start extreme this is so dramatic i love it they start writing the numbers of the days at on Mm -hmm. various places around his house like Uh it'll be like a one like scrawled into the wall or like a two drawn in paint on the door or some stuff just like every day and he's just like getting more and more stressed out about this it's so cinematic and and then it really final... is it cuts nicely yeah yeah and then uh and in the meantime they're waiting for uh his okay so who uh jefferson hope the the sort of i guess hero if you hit from his perspective of this revenge story uh right. is all set like see he's like yeah i'm gonna marry lucy we're gonna we're gonna all get out of here And I just have to go do something (laughs) for, like, a couple months. Yeah, he has some business to see to first. Yeah, and then, but as soon as I come back, we'll be, you know, I'm besting you guys out of here. Right. And in in the meanwhile, this this window for them to make this choice of which man Lucy is going to marry is shrinking. Is shrinking, yeah. The first warning he gets, Ferrier wakes up in a locked room with mm-hmm. locked door and windows with a note pinned to his chest that says 30 days. It's so, like, pirate, almost. like <laughs> It's genuinely terrifying. And, and of course, yeah. the whole point of that was that it was, as much as it was a warning about the actual time frame, it was an exercise of power. It was mm-hmm. a way for them to say, we can get to you. There is no escaping this. Right. So that's happening. And then right as I, it's the absolute last day, um, the the guy finally, uh, Jefferson Hope finally comes back, like, in the middle of the night. They're sneaking, and then it's Escape from Mor- Escape Mormonia. Escape from Mormonia! <laughs> yes. And uh, so in the dead of night, they, you know, they, they pack up all their money and Lucy and 
all yeah. three of them uh, get down to this ravine where uh, Hope has like stashed a couple of two horses and a donkey, and they're and they just run for it basically. Right. And his you know his tracking hunting skills, he's basically Aragorn come in handy and they're you know they're doing pretty good they're getting really far away and then just like as they think that they're they're in the clear he is like all right you know we're we're starving i'm gonna go hunt us a you know a ram real quick bring back some meat he goes does that he's like this is great awesome i got my stuff he gets back and they're not there and there's just this horrible like he's like fuck and then he sees he doesn't see them and then he sees a grave Right. And the name of John Perry, and they're like, we killed him, we buried him right here. Here he is. And Lucy's gone. Obviously, they took her back with them. And mm-hmm. he just, uh, and that's the, uh, his uh, his origin story, his villain origin story, basically. Not even villain. Yeah. I'm, actually, I'm honestly rooting for this guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he's. <laughs> I think he's, the revenge is totally justified. Like, at that point, dude, I'd, want, I'd, go, I'd go nuts, too. <laughs> it's something we'll get to, I think, especially at the end of the book. There's there's a really interesting consideration about the nature of his crime. Uh, so, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it has become, it's gone from mystery story to uh, extremely claustrophobic frontier horror story to now full-fledged revenge story yeah revenge tale something i did want to mention is that when they were when they were getting out of there uh it said that farrier put together some eatables in a bag and like filled up a stoneware jar full of water now nick i don't know about you Mm -hmm. but one of my favorite things in a book (laughs) one of the things that an author can do to instantly win my loyalty is to Mm. give me lists of equipment and supplies is that just me uh I mean, I I dig it. It definitely builds. Uh, and there's none of that here. I wanted it. It's it, I want to know what you got in there. They have <laughs> what kind three of eatables are we talking about here? We got exactly. jerky. We got yes, like what I is it? I want to know. And are you leaving without like equipment of any kind? I want to know. You got a gun? Obviously, he's got a gun. We heard about it before. Do you have like a right. compass? What about like a fishing kit? It's I just I don't know. You know what? I'm I, I gotta say I'm right with you there. Uh, I I don't usually get too like caught up about those lists, but in this case, I was like, okay. They they actually did get me there because I was like, okay, a stoneware jar, that seems heavy. How it much does. water are we carrying? <laughs> I wanted to know, yeah. like, what does this that look like? How much water does it water, contain? Yeah, like... it's not good. Give us more detail. I remember the very first time I ever hit that in a book. I was reading Julie of the Wolves, and she was mm-hmm. she had, like, and she was putting her backpack together, and it was like, two eggs, a small jar of sugar, a twist of salt in a little napkin. And I'm like, fuck yeah, Julie, you list that stuff. This is, this is so good. Because <laughs> you know then that each, that like every one of those things is going to come in handy later. Yeah, I, I just love that. And I was a little disappointed that Arthur Conan Doyle, because he seems, he's a details man, obviously. Right. It's like, you're going to go into like poetic detail, describing how this girl looks and what she looks like and comparing her to this. But then you're just going to not tell us what kind of food and yeah. stuff they're bringing. Like, Eatables how am I supposed to imagine them living out here? <laughs> tell me what kind of sandwiches dog whatever right. anyway so yes escape from mormonia um <laughs> farrier ends up super dead they even put a creepy little like headstone paper on there mormon ninjas yeah um and that's another thing is that throughout all of this no one is ever seen to act against them like mm-hmm. no one personally comes and threatens them uh hope just comes back from his ram hunt and they're just just ghosts they're just gone yep. he doesn't see a soul which i think definitely does a good job adding to the creepiness factor super creepy uh so he returns to mormonia which i was never sure 
whether or not, and it, it might have been explicitly stated, and I just don't remember from the book, but I was never mm-hmm. sure whether or not that was specifically supposed to be the real world, like Salt Lake City or the real world Deseret or any of that, or if it was supposed to be a fictitious version. Or you know what? Maybe Doyle just didn't know enough about what actually happened. I, if I had to guess, it would be the last one. Probably, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about most right. Most of the yeah. things I know about Doyle. <laughs> uh, so he returns to Mormonia and confronts these gentlemen one of whom, which one I forget just at the moment, has Mm. married Lucy. Right. So he sees that. He sees Lucy get married to this guy, and she almost immediately just dies of being miserable because people died of being miserable back in the olden days. Um, So she dies, and that is just kind of like the final straw for him. And he goes to where her body is and kind of just like promises her that he'll avenge her and balance the scales basically and he takes the wedding ring which we see later he takes the wedding ring which is which is yeah the ring that Mm -hmm. blew my mind because that did tie it all together these these things Mm -hmm. seemed completely unrelated and i'm like oh shit that's the ring and that was another important thing was that like allowing her to be buried in that would be tacit acceptance of the fact that she had essentially been forced to convert and participate in this thing right yeah which again not a thing that happened mormons did not force people to convert to the best of our knowledge this is not a great Mm -hmm. this is not a great portrayal historical accuracy d d minus yeah (laughs) doyle minus um Mm -hmm. he proceeds to basically just nickel and dime these dudes to death from the shadows for like the next what is it like couple of years yeah, he just freaking follows these guys all around the world, basically. Yeah, he yeah. lets them get not a moment of sleep. Mm-hmm. One of them is uh, like doing his taxes or something one day, and a bullet just punks into the wall right mm-hmm. next to his head. And it wasn't because he couldn't have gotten the bullet to hit him. It was yeah. because he wanted him to know that he could have had the bullet hit him at any time. Mm-hmm. So he's just creating this very intense sense of paranoia in these gentlemen. He chased them for a million years. Yeah. All the way to... I think it was St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida, Mm -hmm. because uh, Florida hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. Then eventually that brings us up to basically the current situation, which was where he had come to uh, England. He had gotten himself a job as a handsome cab driver. Yeah, he starts working for uh, Victorian Uber, and that's where it leaves off with him. Uh, And and then we kind of stop as he's... uh, I think it's that point that we learn that he has uh, an aortic aneurysm, right? Yes. He does. So... Conveniently, He's on borrowed time. Here's the thing I was wondering about. What's the deal? I get that the guy had to be poisoned, and I get that the whole pills thing just makes it that much more dramatic. Because obviously if you are extracting revenge on someone, you want them to die as slowly and painfully as possible. So poison is right. perfect. But like, what's the, why does he, I personally don't see the point in him only making some of the pills poisoned, and then yeah. he was also going to take one other than just, it seemed like unnecessary drama to me. I was like, Arthur, this story is already dramatic. And did they ever like say his reasoning? But I don't think they ever did. It was just like, oh, he did it. It's entirely possible that it was just for more dramatic effect. But there mm. is an undercurrent in this story of the power of belief and the influence that belief has in our lives. And it's not a huge undercurrent, obviously, because it's a detective story. We got crimes to do, but it takes place in a religious context. It's pretty logical, yeah. And so there's this bit where 
hope specifically he won't let her be buried Mormon because and mm-hmm. I think that was a similar thing to what Farrier said was that he didn't he may have actually feared for her soul not that it went into that specific detail of it but that that was an important thing that the point of the thing was important to him there was actually even a bit um I believe it was lost it was hope who said he was trying to get answers out of somebody and he said I conjure you by everything you hold dear to answer me a few questions mm-hmm. and the idea of belief having power and that your belief in something can be used to bind you if you believe yeah. it strongly enough. There's also that line where he's uh, right before he's about to kill him where he uh, or where, when he's offering the pill where he says, uh, let us see if there is justice upon the earth or if we are ruled by chance. So exactly. maybe it's kind of a thing where it's not so much about like Lucy at that point where it's just he genuinely so much bad shit has happened to him where he's like he's maybe having like a conflict of faith where he's like is is it is the world really just so unjust that all of these things could happen right. like an innocent girl could die or is there actual justice we'll see by like so maybe it's like a personal thing like if i take, i think that's what it was yeah yeah if i take the non-poison pill yeah exactly either way like if he takes the non-poison pill twice in a row then obviously he's doing god's will and Mm -hmm. you know everything is working out according to plan in his mind and if he uh ends up taking the poison pill well then at least he is uh out of the situation and not having to deal with this whole thing anymore so yeah the situation has created the most dangerous uh kind of opponent which is the man Mm. with nothing to lose right he spent you know 40 years or however long tracking these men all across the face Mm. of the earth just devotes his whole life to it yeah exactly it is it has become the soul in the center of him and now he's at this point where like either this works and is true or my entire life has been meaningless i don't really care which let's find out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is super intense and so he it's gone uh this this entire explanation this whole and by the way it shifted into third person descriptive instead of because the whole first half of the book was from watson's point of view and then the second half of the book was third person very they did this they did that you know um Mm -hmm. so it was a completely different style but we learn that uh the whole exposition dump we've just been given was uh hope sitting essentially in the interrogation room just giving his side of the story and right. saying yo dogs i mean i'm super arrested y'all got me but <laughs> i did hear what i came here to do and i got this mm-hmm. hard thing so i mean he's not even being a jerk about it he's he's just like look i i it's, it's not a question of winning or losing like my job is done i don't really care what happens now right like whatever here's my story you know here's here's why just in case you were wondering yeah so okay Nicholas, <laughs> I have bound myself romantically to a Caucasian woman. And one of the mm-hmm. things that that means is that <laughs> 80% of the television I watch is about murders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, white people do love murders. Damn, don't they, though? Uh, for really upsetting reasons, actually. My, it's like a... 70-year-old grandma who watches almost exclusively NCIS and CSI. I'm like, some of this stuff is graphic even for me. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw some statistics about that. Apparently, like, women are 80% more likely to enjoy murder programming than men, and it's specifically because they want to learn how not to get murdered because the world is a nightmare. <laughs> you know what? I really never thought of it that way. That's sad. Anyway, go on. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's awful. Um, like I actually, I just sent my missus and her daughter to see uh, my favorite murder when they came to town. Audience was entirely women, and it's uh, the idea of just wow. hundreds and hundreds of women trying to figure out how not to get murdered with each other's help is uh, terrifying. But the point is, <laughs> so the murder television you see, the stuff that they make into stories, hey, is... Scout, Scout, stop. What's Scout doing? She's scratching my carpet. Scout, come here, come here. You can't possibly be that bored. Come on. <laughs> You got a whole tree. You got a whole cat tree. Our technical producer, Scout, <laughs> has uh, come to say hello and offer her opinions vis-a-vis murder. <laughs> she's like, actually, I'm a woman. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, she's got opinions. Um, most of the murder that you see portrayed, most of the mystery murders that are true stories, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that they choose to make into stuff can be wrapped up fairly neatly, right? There's a motive. There's a thing. Justice is oftentimes served because that's what makes for a satisfying story. The things right. that I like, the ones I really enjoy, are the ones that end kind of how this story ends, where they've got the murderer, they've heard his explanation for why he killed these dudes, and there's really nothing to do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got what he got what he wanted to do, and even driving that home, he just he doesn't even get you know ar- executed or anything. He doesn't even get no. the chance to have like the law justice, you know. Exactly, yeah, because his 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 heart aneurysm gives out or whatever it was, yeah, mm-hmm. which is I mean kind of the equivalent of him taking one of his pills, I suppose. But yeah, yeah just the idea that Lestrade, Lestrade, and Holmes and Watson are there just looking around at each other, like what the fuck do we do with this? <laughs> like, <what? laughs> yeah, and it it really it serves to highlight that like the law is a concept it's an artificial thing that has limitations there are things mm-hmm. that simply it simply cannot do and i love it when holmes who works in the service of the law if not necessarily spiritually comes mm-hmm. up against something that the law simply does not know how to handle oh yeah that's my favorite shit i love that yeah it's so good um and then for uh part two chapter six uh all i have noted here is not a lot to say about revenge really because it's revenge. I mean, not yeah, it's like that's it. That's pretty much it wraps up. I kind of like the uh we do get a little conclu- a conclusion uh after his testimony after the whole story, Jefferson Jefferson Hope's story wraps up and comes to an end. Uh mm-hmm. we're pretty satisfied and but we still kind of are like Doyle's like, "Oh, well, I still want I I got to tell you how Holmes figured it all out of like course. detail for detail. I have to like go into this." So we yeah, get the Holmes, full Poirot. Um, yeah, exactly. Let's sit down. Everyone everyone come to the everyone come to the Everybody, <laughs> drawing no. room and now i will tell you <laughs> yeah uh so he says everyone watson come to the fire and i'll tell you uh exactly how i did this and watson's like got his notebook out like hell yeah dude um hit me so he just kind of goes he, he starts holmes goes a little bit into like he brings up this uh idea of synthetic versus analytical reasoning Mm-hmm. which um was kind of interesting it's just basically you can most people you tell them the steps of something and they can tell you what happens like oh this 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 happens oh he gets murdered right but his his job basically how he works things out uh with analytical reasoning is he just gets the result and he has to kind of work backward from that you know just basic at, at this point we see that as just basic detective stuff but at the mm. time it was like revolutionary yeah i don't I don't know if any other detective stories really went into that much exposition and detail about how their detectives figured it out it was more just like a show like they figured right. it out that's all you needed to know 
But Doyle's like, no, I'm going to tell you how he did it. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna tell you my reasoning behind every single one of these steps. And mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, yeah, absolutely. I'll eat that up. That's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah right? And uh, so that was kind of nice. And I also really like Holmes's, like, really petty, just, like... Holmes is such a bitch. He makes this comment about how, like... Uh, what you do in this world is a matter of no consequence. Uh, the question is, what can you make people believe that you have done? Uh, yeah. In in regard to uh, Lestrade and Gregson, just seeing this case as like they got to solve it and get the credit. And right. then you at that very very last page, you see just the police report, and it's just British detectives Lestrade and Gregson have expertly solved this case. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? Which which Holmes called earlier in the story yeah so that that kind of comes back around and uh it's kind of funny because he he makes that comment and then he's like he thinks about he kind of stops for a second like "Uh, well anyway it was fun so i don't really care like i had a you know i had a good time solving it it was a challenge yeah and then watson steps in like no no dude don't i got you don't worry about this i'm gonna write this whole thing out i'm gonna publish it and Boom. you're going to, like, people are going to know that you did it, dude, because you deserve this credit. And I just love Watson so much. He's so good. He's it such is. A good it's guy. really good. I, I love a person who will see that another person is not taking care of themselves properly or mm-hmm. or making sure that they get treated the way they should be treated and says, nope, my, my son, you are getting what's coming to you no yep, matter what absolutely. I have to do about it. Just yeah. total, just ride or die. And what's great is, of course, in the you know the BBC Sherlock Watson has a blog, but and that's like that's kind of a one line joke. Is that mm-hmm. that's the equivalent of writing for a periodical? Is, oh, he's got a blog, but like literally, that's what it was. It was yeah. like I'm gonna write down what I think and I'm gonna put it on paper and give it to people and they can read it if they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as much as I, I kind of think about BBC Sherlock as like it starts out really great and then kind of just falls to it, absolute yeah. shit. Um, it, it moffits a little bit. I still honestly really enjoy a lot of the first season, and they did do, especially with this particular story, a study in Scarlet, which in the episode is a study in Pink. Right. Um, the references to the canon are just they're really cleverly done like i really mm-hmm. got to give them that all of the like him having a blog instead of writing journals and the whole um the the thing with the cabbie and everything it just like it it was it was really clever how they did a lot of those well i'll have to rewatch that having read this now cuz it's it's mm-hmm. it's been a few years they they keep you can uh, you can gobble down a, a sherlock and oh, just yeah. not go back for a little while but oh yeah I'll have to no check that i out again. It's it's honestly really fun having read the stories first and mm-hmm. then watching the episodes and seeing like ah, I see what you did there, um, so yeah definitely worth a rewatch at least for the for the first episode for sure and yeah, yeah again with the whole Watson like keeping a keeping a journals about all of this stuff it's kind of it's brought up throughout the it's kind of like Holmes's opinion of Watson writing down his cases really. Like I don't know, I don't know if it evolves or just fluctuates because of inconsistency, but I would I'll right. give some credit here and say it evolves throughout the canon where it starts out with Holmes being like he doesn't really comment on Watson saying he was gonna write it down in this story because there's no time, but um in later stories uh, Watson mentions it again and Holmes kind of like goes from making fun of him or like the way Roth- Watson chronicles the stories is 
it's almost like Doyle's making fun of himself as a writer by making mm-hmm. things dramatic, by making Watson write them down dramatically for like mm-hmm. for the readers because that's what they want. And Holmes being like, no, you need to be scientific about this. Like, there's no romanticism, there's no emotion. It like just write down the facts. And Watson's like, but people don't want to read that. Like, do they you know. want people to like you or not? <laughs> and um, they're they're kind of like fight about that throughout the series. And mm-hmm. um, but eventually it kind of just turns into this like. I don't think Holmes ever really gets that angry about it. It's just kind of like him almost like poking fun at Watson in like a friendly way. And then he calls him his biographer and he calls him his Boswell, which was like the same, the same kind of thing. And kind of like, it becomes an endearing thing after a while where like he makes fun of Watson's emotion, but actually he appreciates it. I never thought of of it like that, that it's uh, that it was because Doyle, even just throughout the course of this, uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, is very comfortable poking fun at not only the genre he's working in, but mm-hmm. at like just the concept of writing a book. Like <laughs> this book fundamentally realizes that an artificial story like this, on some level, is inherently ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like it, yeah. it, it kind of. No, not it's not necessarily like in a meta sense like it doesn't wink at the camera too much but it right. kind of embraces that it's that it's a fictitious nonsense story and embraces yeah. the, the suspension of disbelief that has to come with that mm-hmm. um and so it's it's a lot of fun when it does get just kind of snarky and a little winky like that it's also interesting because for a long time there were you know, your epistolary novels, which were in the form of letters and diaries and reports and things like that, instead of Mm -hmm. third person writing the way we typically see novels today. And it's interesting that those were, I mean, what we, what we read in the first half essentially is Watson's report. Like even when, when you watch, you know, when you watch the BBC Sherlock or a movie or whatever, what you, what you're seeing is essentially a dramatization of what Watson wrote in world. And so mm-hmm. having having that within this other structure of the story that's happening and then yeah. uh, all of Holmes' action, action stuff on top, it's just interesting. It's much better writing than I would have imagined it to be before I read it, which is, again, a prejudice <laughs> I think it's easy to have against, you know, things from what feel like a million years ago. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even when I first started reading these stories, I was like, this is... I, I had to my brain had to adjust to even the style of the dialogue. I was like, first of all, this is so British. Second of all, it's so old. Like I understood what people were saying, but there were so many references to things that I just didn't understand. Like I was like, what is shag tobacco? Is that different from regular tobacco? Like what, what what is like, you know, like what kind of mantelpiece are we talking about here? And I had to just do a lot of Googling, but it was interesting. (laughs) Um, No, you're getting targeted ads for mantelpieces. (laughs) <laughs> and like, I don't know, like Victorian pipes, like what do they, what do they, what does a pipe look like? Like I mm-hmm. don't, like I don't know. The oldest person I've ever seen was like my papa, who kind of smoked a pipe, but not, you know, I didn't see him do it that often. Like right. so, it's just like, and that's one of the things that kind of um t- like turns me off about the fantasy genre is that when it's done not very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm talking about like not good fantasy novels. Um, right. When they describe something that the writer just invented and they mm-hmm. don't describe it quite well enough so you just don't know what they're talking about you like can't picture it so every time they mention like this creature or this you know yeah 
thing you just kind of have this like blob in your mind because you're like well i don't know like i have no real world reference for this and you didn't describe it well enough so there's <laughs> there's there's a balance there because you can you can do that in one of two ways uh in the excellent um his dark materials trilogy the golden compass books which i mm. enjoy quite a lot mm. haven't read them all i know about them is big polar bear but go on <laughs> big polar bear oh yeah yorick bernison is <laughs> amazing um it is it eventually comes to transpire that those that it, that it is in like an alternate world's story and they can step into the world's next door but part of the fun about that mm-hmm. is that they can have things that are clearly things that exist in our world, but they call them different things. And you start to piece that out because they just refer to them by what they call them. Like there's a drink that's called uh, Jennifer. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was. So I did some Googling and it turns out that what we call gin is made from the juniper berries or the Ginevra. So like, so it just turned out to be a different name for gin. And there's actually a bit where, um, where two characters from two different worlds, one of them, which is implied to be our world meets Mm -hmm. and they, they look up at the, the electric lights up above and the little girl from the main world, the story takes place. And she refers to them as being anbaric lights. And he's confused Mm -hmm. by that. He says, no, no, those are electric lights. And she says, electrum, you mean like the, uh, the hard yellow stuff that forms from tree sap. And so it clicks that in this world, for whatever reason, the words amber and electric just got swapped. And so you can have you can have a story that embraces that this is the way that is in this world. Like if these characters drink Jennifer, you can figure out what that is on your own. They don't need mm-hmm. to explain it to you because this is just how their world works. Or on the other hand, you can have a book where they introduce a ridiculous term and they completely explain it to you because they understand you don't actually exist in this world. Right. And what you're talking about sounds like when it's right in the middle, when it doesn't it doesn't really adhere to either one, and as a result, you get no useful explanation of any mm-hmm. kind. But yeah, all yeah, but all that is to say, you can, since all of this stuff actually existed, uh, you can look it up which is nice but um oh my gosh where was i going for that uh being able to connect with old time literature yeah like he arthur conan doyle pretty intentionally for this past bit in mormonia used like old time language intentionally Mm -hmm. and part of that i think was for the you know to to emphasize that it took place in the past but also to i think emphasize like the religious element to it which does tend to have like a ye old feel to it but also That's hilarious, because considering <laughs> how the modern part of the story sounds to us, mm-hmm. it, it's 130 years old. Oh, yeah. Like, we're already in the olden times, and then we go even oldener times. Exactly. Making fun of even oldener times. <laughs> it's yeah. great. Uh, but no, but you yeah. have a point. There's there's a lot of cultural stuff that gets taken for granted uh, mm-hmm. that the audience will just be familiar with, and... Like, I'm not saying that an author should write, like, worrying about what an audience in a hundred years will be able to or not able to understand. Well, yeah, but that's the thing with these, with the stories that I realized as I kept reading them, was that the more I read them, the more I could just gather with, it's just like learning how to read anything else. Uh, Yeah. Even, like, Shakespeare. It's almost like, it's almost like reading Shakespeare. When I first read a Shakespeare play for the first time ever, I was like, what in the goddamn, and... (laughs) <laughs> but eventually, the more I read more Shakespeare and acted in some Shakespeare plays and actually got to, like, see the, like, word-to-real-life translation, mm-hmm. um, pretty much after, the, as soon as I acted in my first Shakespeare show, uh, Theater Kid, hello, um, 
I, it, I just kind of clicked. Like I could right. understand Shakespeare now. And that was kind of how it was with these stories too, where like now anything that's set in Victorian times, not even just England, just anywhere or like any time before the twenties, I, it's mm-hmm. no problem now. I'm used to it, you know, so yeah. I can totally know what's going on. And that's, that's kind of fun to just get there. And also why I try to encourage people or like not, not discourage don't not like people get discouraged by the age of a book you know yeah. against reading it because this story is just so you know bonkers over yonkers like it's so fun it's such a wild ride and it is it's a romp you know everyone is just like oh it's it's victorian it's it's gonna be boring and it's like no please mm-hmm. <laughs> trust me yeah. well and part of part of that is our pretty natural human idea that we are the only real people that before mm-hmm. we were born like people didn't people weren't funny people didn't mm-hmm. feel love people didn't feel the same way about songs that we did it's a it, you know it's it's a self-contained arrogant pretty natural mammal thing i think yeah but once yeah. you i mean like you said in 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 the last episode arthur conan doyle drawing a little picture of himself holding up his medical license <laughs> that says license to kill and that's kind of uncomfortable because it's a reminder of our own mortality but once you get past mm-hmm. that and embrace that people have always been hilarious and deeply stupid um yeah <laughs> Once you, once you get kind of past that and really, really just tear into it, you'll see that people have always been people, and it's really just the clothes that change. Mm-hmm. Which is why Shakespeare is funny. Shakespeare is like ninety percent dick jokes, and oh yeah, uh, the idea that it's taken you know super seriously as highbrow literature would make Shakespeare laugh until he keeled mm-hmm. over. I'm certain. Yeah, it's beautiful. so that was uh, that was a study in Scarlet Part Two, yeah. the Country of the Saints. Do the majority of Holmes' stories, because part of the Holmes mythos, and we talked about this in the last episode, about how this is the only Holmes story that doesn't struggle under the weight of its own reputation. Mm-hmm. So do the majority of Holmes' stories, as they are portrayed in popular media that we see today, do they usually wrap up neatly with a bow on? Because this one has this sort of, oh, well, uh, okay, ending and that's it like there's just just nothing really for it which seems very realistic that's what happens sometimes yeah or, kind of so yeah, is there um, is are they like that or does it does it more like wrap up neatly there's definitely but just because of how many stories there are it's mm-hmm. you get a nice range some of the stories definitely do have a nice little bow they catch the bad guy he goes to jail or whatever um mm-hmm. they you know they they solve the murder and then Holmes is like great I solved it and Watson's like great I can write it down uh but there's plenty of them that even uh in I think it's the first short story that's in most collections which is um Oh my goodness, I forgot what it was called. The one with Irene Adler. Sure. Um, he he doesn't catch her at the end. She basically wins. And so there's definitely some... And then there's some where... Uh, which are a little like more heavy in tone where maybe he does find out what happens, but it's mm-hmm. really messed up and he almost right. wishes he didn't kind of thing. Um, so yeah, you get a lot of... It's it's a nice range of some of them are tied up nicely, some of them they get away and it's like shit, and other times it's you do solve it but at what cost kind of right kind of thing. I liked yeah. I liked it a lot because the fundamental premise of Sherlock as a character and like in world as a human being is that mm-hmm. everything can be figured out, everything can be explained, everything comes down to data. Yeah. Um, and the results the real world application of that methodology is 
is very often just that well here we are like mm-hmm. it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't quite match up with his his struggle to resolve his understanding of the world with how the world actually ends up working and i think that that ends up informing most of the adaptations we get because people want from a story that it will wrap up nicely people Mm -hmm. want there to be justice they want there to be a definitive conclusion which is not what happens in real life a good chunk of the time uh hence women uh listening to murder podcasts (laughs) trying not to get uh murdered yeah man like i don't know if you've ever listened to my favorite murder i'm not saying it's not a good show it's a very good show the hosts are charming they they have a cat called elvis uh that they bring on at the end of every episode to give him a cookie that rolls yeah no it's so good (laughs) it's real good but like i just can't put that stuff in my head in my heart man yeah no me neither i i absolutely agree as as much as i love the sherlock Holmes stories and detective fiction um Mm -hmm. there i i think i read uh an article to that some that effect at some point where it's like people who don't have a lot of not to like call myself out here but um people who don't have a lot of stability in their own lives Mm -hmm. lean uh they're they're drawn towards detective fiction because nine times out of ten uh they do wrap up very nicely and everything is given to you and you know that the detective is going to solve the case at the end you like you have that Mm -hmm. assurance and that's definitely what i like about them but as like and obviously i love a murder if no one actually died if it's fiction right it's great but i can't i absolutely just really don't go out of my way ever to read or watch any real life murder like true crime or yeah. true crime or unsolved or anything like that because it just makes me sad dog like it, it, it just it's bad stuff bums me out I'm reading, you know, monster stories over here, talking to my missus, and, like, no matter what incredibly fucked up thing I read, Mm -hmm. I can say to myself, this is just a story. This is just something some guy made up. Right. It's not real. It's not real. And I I think, yeah, I'm wondering if that's, like, because I think of it as something, like, obviously this is, like, an extreme generalization, but I think of it as something, like, like, for example, my, my dad is a firefighter. And so mm-hmm. he saw a ton of just crazy shit. He's he's seen people die, all that stuff. So when he got home, he never watched anything gory at all. Like he right. could, he just didn't. He was like he was watching Star Trek. He was watching like nature documentaries. He was like I don't need. To, he he said to me at one point like I don't need to watch like violence or excitement. I don't need excitement exciting media. I have enough of that right. in my real life. And that's kind of how I think of it too. Where it's like I don't really need to be thrilled by things i know are real life because my own real like i've seen it i've seen people be shitty i've seen you know firsthand how horrible humanity can be exactly. and i don't like to be reminded of it every goddamn day like i would rather think about you know that's why i like star trek so much because most of the people on there are pretty nice <laughs> and like uh, yeah even if they're fictional it's like hey i know some people like this it makes me think of the people i know who are like this yeah instead of thinking of all their murderers and like like you know i i don't know if you can call me an optimist or whatever, but I really want to think that most people are good. Yeah. Um, even though I know they're obviously not, but you know, it's just, it's just too depressing, but obviously people who I'm not saying that like everyone who enjoys murder mysteries has had a super easy life and, you know, just are looking for excitement in real life stuff just to, for thrill, you know, like, I'm not saying that, but it's, it's kind of like, there's just that, you know, I've observed personally yeah absolutely um Mm -hmm. and that's that is that tends to be why i why i seek refuge in fiction instead of true crime stuff because i 
I, I don't need to be reminded. You you said it very eloquently, and I feel I feel a need to respond just because we're having a two person chat program. But I, I well, really no, don't have also, any elaboration there. I really liked the um the point that you made about how mostly it is mostly women who watch those things. I never even thought yeah. of that. Obviously, as a man, I'm just I don't that never even crossed my mind that yeah, that would be like, the motivation behind listening to those types of things. I I read a tweet thread the other week about mm-hmm. a woman who got in it was an uber or a lyft or one of those and yeah. like the driver said okay we're not going to take the usual route because it's clogged we're going to take this other route and her mm-hmm. flags were were immediately up but she said yeah sure, okay you're the driver whatever so she's driving she's driving they're driving and she's out of cell service and she's immediately nervous and the question becomes is this man just trying to bilk me for a higher fare or mm-hmm. am I possibly about to be murdered? Right. And she, she had to concoct on her feet this entire plan where once they were back in cell service, she called her husband and pretended that he was actually her boss and that they had a Skype date that she was late for so that the driver <laughs> would know she was expected somewhere and right. that people knew she had gotten in a lift. And what's more, she had to do all of this without making it obvious that that's what she was doing. It's like just the fact that she had to think about that and yeah. just immediately, just like that's the first thing. Because it's like I, it, it, I really try to think about that as much as I can with like my Mm -hmm. female friends because with me it's like the honestly I the amount of times I worry about getting murdered is next to zero like exactly as like an openly gay person the worst thing I'll probably experience is maybe someone will shout a slur at me but I don't go around like I don't get into every lift or whatever thinking like oh is this cabbie gonna murder me like you know like i just even I don't even think about that it's not part of it's not part of our thought process as dudes and like and just the fact that women have to do that constantly is every day, every horrible. moment of every day. I am nowhere near as smart and as brave and as canny as every woman on the planet has to be, just not to be raped and murdered and every day. And that's why women are bad. God, the world <laughs> is just a nightmare sometimes. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, obviously, we're not going to solve that problem, but like, it's just it's too easy as men not to think about it because occasionally, like Donna will tell me just something she noticed about people while we were out and I'll make like three or four mental step connections and I was like oh you were just paying attention in case that person turned out to be a murderer mm-hmm. and the the amount of subconscious it's like women are the real homeses and men are just the they Watsons. really are <laughs> yeah they they are the 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 amount of subconscious deductive reasoning that every woman has to do every day is mm-hmm. uh horrifying and like I don't claim to know the answer. I And, like, see, this is not a great thing to talk about because it makes it sound like I'm saying men have problems too, and that's definitely <laughs> not what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is as a man who's aware of that, it is sometimes difficult to know how to act because mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a naturally friendly person. If I'm standing in line and you drop a thing, I'm going to try to help you with it. I'm going to do a little thing. But, you know, I was talking to Donna, and she says, yeah, like, if, if there's a woman who's in line with me and I'm pleasant to her, she has to ask herself, is Casey being pleasant or is Casey planning to murder me? And I don't want anyone to have to think, <laughs> go through that thought process because of me. And as right? a result, I'm frequently uncomfortable in public just because I don't want to make other people uncomfortable and fear for their lives. Right. It's like, I'm constantly evaluating like 
is your own actions. Like, can yeah. I can I do this? Can I say this about someone? Can I like throw out a compliment or whatever? Is it will they interpret it as me being nice or will they interpret it aggressively? And it's like I just don't know. So most of the times I just don't. I just don't. don't. And then <laughs> and then you can go one lie one level higher than that and say, well, is it really condescending of me to say, oh, well, if I say this, they'll just think this. And that can go that can go Tower of Babel. That can go to the sky, and that way lies mm-hmm. madness. There's there's no point <laughs> in it. I, I don't really think this this thread has a has a useful endpoint. I don't think we're yeah. gonna solve uh, America's misogyny problem. What I did want to bring up before I forgot right. was uh for any other people who are interested in mysteries involving the Mormon church that take place in the desert, there is an excellent uh, fantasy Weird West series by a gentleman called R.S. Belcher. Uh, The Mm -hmm. first gun is called the Six Gun Tarot. The second is called the Shotgun Arcana. And uh, the third one, whose name escapes me, came out a little while ago. It's wild. Um, I'm a big fan of religion as magic stories, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, mostly you get that in Christianity. So so it's a fantasy Western? Yes, it is a weird Western. Yeah, it's wild. Um, it takes place in a town called Golgotha, which, for those of you who didn't go to Baptist school, is the name of the hill where the Christ was crucified. So that's <laughs> setting the stage already there. But it, it takes place in the context of the Mormon sort of revolution. Most of the main characters are Mormon, and there is religious magic and fantasy stuff that goes on in a Mormon context, which is very interesting because you'll get... You know, most of what you get is fantasy Catholicism, right? You got your exorcist, you got all that. Occasionally, you'll get some Jewish horror stories, but you don't mm-hmm. see um, you don't see a lot of uh, Islam as magic. You don't see a lot of Mormonism as magic. So it's it's a refreshing change of pace. It's a really fun Western. It's full of uh, kick-ass women, and uh, I believe there's some LGTB representation as well. But it's oh, been a be few nice. years since <laughs> it's been a few years since I've read them and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've tried to become more enlightened in that time, so I can't vouch for how good that is. Mm. That said, mm. um, I remembered them being ripping good fantasy yarns set in westerns. There's monsters and stuff. Check it out if you want. That well, awesome. our buddies, <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us for our escape from Mormonia. You can find us on Twitter at the Final Prod- uh, I can be found at Hotel Theotokos. Nick, where are you? Uh, Wayfarers underscore. Or uh, you know what? Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll I'll get my I'll write my Twitter down next time and say it. But you... until then, you cannot find me. <laughs> Good luck. Very, Nick, Nick is Nick is possibly a Twitter cryptid. Yeah. Um. You can. <laughs> Does follow Nick us, actually uh... exist, or is it just a disembodied voice? We will never know. We'll never know. He's he's uh, an artifact from the mystery shack. Um, <laughs> The uh, show notes for this episode will include links to the free Project Gutenberg versions of the e-text and the audiobook. Again, the audiobook is hella free, and so we cannot vouch for its quality. But if you want to experience this story for yourself instead of our disjointed uh, glossing over rendition of it, feel free to check Mm -hmm. that out. Feel free to tweet at us. Um, The podcast network we're tentatively calling it uh under which we operate the semi-automagic inc podcast network which also produces a DD show called dice and virtue and semi-automagic inc a number of other shows uh you can find that on there you can go to our patreon and support us if you'd like we don't have any patreon rewards lined up for this show specifically yet but uh we'll come up with something don't you worry it'll be pretty good mm-hmm. uh until then oh no i know what we needed to do we need to find out what story we're reading next Oh yeah, I was gonna suggest um, a scandal in Bohemia. That was the one that I the name 
escape me completely the irene oh, Otter sure. story because yeah, i feel no, like I that's was, i was uh, just gonna have uh british siri choose a, a random number but the, from the from the list of the canon i've got here but we can absolutely do scandal and bohemia oh, yes well we can definitely do that next week for sure but i'm just like okay i'm raring to talk about this one it's one of the most popular short stories that like most sure. people know everyone kind of knows who irene adler is she's interpreted yeah. a lot in like uh in film and media and yeah, i want you to see kind of the, the actual counter-rolls. real irene adler because she's yeah. very badass well, all right, folks, you got it here first. Scandal in Bohemia for next time. Before the episode comes up, we'll post links to the free whatnot again, assuming I can find it. I don't believe it'll be a problem. Mm-hmm. Until then, thank you for joining us on the final pod <laughs> All right. Bye, all our buddies. Yep. <laughs> Bye.